and welcome. Welcome to the world of Scrum. What is Scrum, I hear you say. So before I dive in and give you a little more information about Scrum, let me talk to you about my guest. My guest today is Klaus Booker-Larsen, and I'm really pleased I hook up, hooked up with Klaus last year. So a little bit of background on uh, Klaus. After finishing his master's degree in computer science, Klaus worked as a software and product developer, architect, project manager, entrepreneur, trainer, and coach for companies in Switzerland, Denmark, Germany, Canada, and Australia. Klaus is the co-founder and CEO of Aragost AG. He's a member of the Cooperative Flow Days, co-founder of the Swiss Agile Leaders Circle. Klaus is passionate about Scrum, and I'm really pleased because I'm very keen to know more about Scrum. Besides being a certified Scrum master, a professional CSB and product owner, Klaus co-trains CSM courses regularly with Jeff Sutherland, the inventor of Scrum. Klaus has helped major companies from the banking, insurance, pharmaceutical, telecoms, and manufacturing industry in becoming more agile. And I'm really keen to know more about that. Each and every project Klaus has been responsible for was delivered to the highest customer satisfaction. Now, even at home, Klaus uses Scrum as a tool to get his twins to do their daily chores joyfully. Be prepared to get a lot of whys. Klaus believes strongly that this is one of the most important and powerful words and that we ask ourselves far too rarely that, that this question of why. In his spare time, besides job and family, Klaus flies SCP planes, that's single engine pistons. He rides a motorcycle, goes skiing or snowboarding, plays golf, and even assembles IKEA furniture without instructions. Now, his Formula 3 license unfortunately expired a long time ago, otherwise, who knows? So that's a quick introduction to Klaus. Let me bring him online and say, Klaus, very warm welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Sonny, for that nice introduction. <laughs> so you, you're a busy, uh, uh, busy man, very uh, driven, I think, uh, in terms of applying Scrum in many respects. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I sometimes feel like uh, Neo in the Matrix. You say I see Scrum and agility <laughs> everywhere. You know, like when when you seize the Matrix ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, before you and I started talking about this, I realized one thing that I thought I was only gadget freak until you showed me all the gadgetry you've got going around in your office there. And I'm actually I'm actually envious in some respect. <laughs> so look. Scrum is something I have been fascinated about. I read the book by Jeff Sutherland last year. In fact, I listened to it. It's an audible book. And um, I mean, he has a fascinating, fascinating backstory. I think he was an ex-fighter pilot. And he, uh, he had this OODA, I think he calls it, O-O-D-A uh, loop. And then he talks about waterfalls and so on. So before I drag away with all these bits and pieces, why don't you string some things together for us and tell us a little bit about Scrum what it is, and um, you know, uh, educate me basically. Okay, yeah, happy to. He wasn't a fighter pilot; he was a reconnaissance. Ah, um, yes. Actually, in the, in the Vietnam War, yeah, he was like, and he usually he tells about like half of his uh, buddies were shot down and and uh, killed over North Vietnam, and that's uh, right. 
true proper war stories. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Scrum, and I uh, I need to to start a little bit earlier than just Scrum. I mean, Scrum is is a tool to sell solve uh, complex problems. So let me start off with saying, like, Scrum is to be used or agility generally when we're talking about product development. But when we talk about product development, what we mean by product development is anything that even remotely can qualify as a product. It can be a physical product like a Saab Gripen, a fighter plane. It can be a physical product like uh, this pen. It can be software or any virtual other virtual uh, product. Uh, it could be a process or a service as a, an organization you want to offer a new service to your clients. That would also qualify as a product in this context. Right. So I want to start off by like how we traditionally for the past 100 years since management basically was invented in 1911 by by frederick uh, taylor uh, frederick winslow taylor i think um how, how we've developed products and by far most companies still to the biggest extent uh, extent develop products today and i'm gonna draw that um because it makes it a little bit easier to understand you yeah Team. And you hear me still? That's, right? a, that's a yeah, that's a fantastic setup. I just want to give a quick shout out to Vince. Hi, Vince, Jeanette. Lovely to see you, and Charlie. Good to see you as well. Please, just be prepared to learn about Scrum. I'm looking forward to it. Go, go ahead, class. Sure. So, what do we usually do when we want to develop a new product? Right? We do market analysis, or we go go and talk to to uh, potential customers, and that, and we talk to them, and we get an idea like what they would like like to solve their problem is something like this. Okay. But that's not specific enough. We want to deliver a product. So we continue doing more analysis, uh, prototyping maybe, uh, where we show them prototype or we write up concepts and we ask them, is this what you want? And they go like, yeah, well, actually, maybe it's more like this. And we continue this talk and they say, like, okay, more like this. You notice these clouds, like that's a fuzzy thing that gets less and less fuzzy. And we talk somewhat more to them and say, like, we want this. This is what we want. Yeah. And with all this information... Sorry, Klaus, just to say yes. your writing is directly under your name badge there. So some of that we can't see. So okay, I just thought I'd so let you know if that. I move this down yeah, here. Perfect. That's perfect. Good. Okay. Good. Yeah. So, so we do all this analysis, the preparation, you know, like we then find like some part of this here. We need to find a budget. So somebody's paying for this product. Uh, we, we start maybe thinking of like what would the marketing look like? how much we do business case and those business cases being huge. We do all that information. We talk a lot to potential customers, right? And with all that information and now assurance of like, this is the product we want to build. Again, like that product could be a service we want to, we want to have ready by the beginning of 2022, okay? And we use all that information and we look back here and we aim for that endpoint and we shoot. And usually by the time we get there, we've missed the target. Maybe only by a little bit, but we've yeah. missed the target. That's what we usually see. Right. Added to that is that that target actually usually moves, especially in a complex world, right? Where competitors in that uh, three quarters of a year where we've developed that new service or, or that process that you want to roll out to your organization of 20,000 people or whatever, like over time, things change. Like we weren't sure about technology. There's all kinds of risks involved that make this point maybe have moved to here. So we've missed the target measured by where we should be at the end, not where we want it to be, but where we should be by the end by a lot. Right. And that's what we see a lot today, right? Organizations that uh, deliver products where the users or the customers 
uh, at the end say like, okay, but what are we going to do with that? Right? That's not what we need today. Now, in an agile context, you can still see this. Yes. Yeah. In yes. an agile context, we would start off the same way, and we would have this massive cloud. Right. So we don't have a specific idea of what we're going to deliver, but we have an idea, and it gives us a, we we have enough of an idea to give us a, a sense of direction. So we do a first step. And we take this step, this increment. This is something that preferably is something we can roll out already. Maybe not to the entire user base. If it's a big user base, it's certainly not with all the functionality that we intended to be in this product at the end, but some of it. And we ask the, uh, the stakeholders, the users, like, is this uh, going in the right direction? And notice that even if I continue this arrow, if I, oh, let me get to you, like, even if, if I extended this arrow. I wouldn't even hit that big cloud. Yeah. But that's okay. So we ask them there, is, is that what you want? And they go like, no, you know what? Actually, what we need is this. So we course correct. Right. And we deliver the second increment. Right. Do we hit that cloud? No, we don't. But that's okay because we ask them again, what is it you want? And the same way, those clouds, the closer we get to the goal, the more, uh, more clear we are on what we're going to hit. And we're going to do this more, one more step here, and maybe here we'll end. Maybe we'll say here, this one here, this increment, that's actually good enough. Because what we're doing is we always deliver the most important features, the most important parts about this product, the USPs, so to say. And then, like for each increment, the value we get for the same price will get smaller and smaller. Okay. okay. So, okay. so you're, 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 you're course correcting, I guess, aren't you? Yes. Constantly, and you can compare it. Like this is like shooting with a cannon, right? right? We get if I want to hit a house or, or or a factory or something in war. Back to war again. <laughs> um, if you want to hit a house uh, with the artillery, you just need information about like where's the house, where are yourself, where's the wind coming from, what's the velocity of the cannonball leaving the cannon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then you need a physician, an expert. And he can tell you, well, you need to aim it in this direction at this angle, and you will hit that house with one shot, right? If the house is moving, you cannot use this tool. Well, you can use it, but the success rate is going to be very small, and it's pure luck if you hit it. So mm -hmm. what do we want in this case? Well, if you're staying in the military example, you want a homing missile. Let's say that is a homing missile, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's what Scrum is, what agility is. So what we have over here is, is Agile. Hmm. And what we have over here is what we sometimes call Waterfall. Ah. Or beat off big design up front. Or, or okay, now I need to move it a little bit down again so you can read that. Right? Now, just, just stop. I've got a bit I've of an echo coming, coming back. Let me, let me. Um, I don't know if other people can hear the echo. But anyway, on the Waterfall side. This is the traditional Gantt chart, isn't it? That yes. um, people refer to. So can you, can exactly. you, that's where you have the, the Gantt chart set up and you say stop star or end star, et cetera, and those sort of things. Exactly. So, so if you wanted to draw the Gantt chart, right, it looks like this. Then it goes down here and you have the next. Right. And that's also what it's called, why we often call it waterfall. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It looks like a waterfall. We do the analysis. Then we do the design, then we do development, we do testing, and then ultimately we roll it out. 
and we have specialists for each of these. Like we have specialists uh, that do the analysis, we have specialists that do the, the design, specialists who do the development, specialists for testing, and specialists to roll this out, yeah. to integrate it, right, to bring it out to the world. And that's why we often call that waterfall because it goes from where you go from one phase to the next phase. And there is no really no plan anyway. Of course, sometimes you have to do it, but there's no really plan to go back. Mm -hmm. While here you have, you do, you, you do the whole process in each of these steps and then you start over again. So you get feedback often. Here, also on the process, like here in, in, in this model, at the end, like we do a lessons learned or post-mortem or whatever we call it. Yeah, we do one after each of these to see like how can we improve the process how can we get better you see from from my perspective as an engineer what is fascinating about what you said is that when you think about waterfalls which is what the traditional bastion of engineers use you know the uh, the uh, the the flow of information what we're saying is that there is no corrective loop in there whereas if you take the scrum approach you have an opportunity to take more of a sniper approach and take a more uh, calibrated approach to make sure that your end goals are being achieved. Is that is that fundamentally, have I got that wrong? No, you got that absolutely right, Tony. That's okay. exactly what it is. It's, it's uh, we, we like to say like Scrum builds on the foundation of transparency, inspection and adaption. And if you have a complex, uh, a complex system, and I won't go into complex and complicated today. You have had that with <laughs> Dave Snowden, right? So whoever is not sure about what complex is here, go back and, and watch one of the earlier shows from Sony, like everything yeah. has, has to do with Dave Snowden. Um, but in a complex setting, you're just doomed if you try to get your, like find a solution with uh, the, the canon, with the uh, analysis, uh, design, development, and rolling out version of waterfall right mm -hmm. you need to constantly like you need to have a system you need to keep it as as transparent as possible then re regularly and the more often you do it the better you are uh, in inspecting and then adapting and mm -hmm. it's uh, that OODA loop that you were mentioning before like that's basically the same thing just just talk PDA, about that Sorry, sorry, Klaus, yeah, just talk sorry. about that OODA loop for a second because some of our audience members might not have familiarity with it um, okay, I would rather than talk about the PDCA cycle, which is, is right. similar. Yeah. Uh, the plan, do, check, act. Right. That's that's the same uh, similar thing. And I, I I won't say it's the same. In, thing. Fact, in fact, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the PDCA cycle because a lot of people in my line of work are more familiar with the PDCA Deming uh, approach on that. So that's perfect for us actually. Okay. So it's plan, do, then check. That's exactly what's happening here, right? Right. Like within this. Within each of these iterations, we plan, we do, and then here at the end, we check together with the, the stakeholders and the users, yeah. Yeah. which are stakeholders, right? And then we act, that's the course correction, right? Um, yeah. And then we do again, plan, do, check, act, plan, do, check, act. That's yeah. exactly what we're doing. So now Rahul says conventional has no course correction hmm now I realize why it's called water flow thank you Klaus so there you go you know so we we are more familiar with this waterfall expression it was an, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me when I found out through uh, uh, reading and watching and listening the uh, the um, Jeff Sutherland uh, story um just just on that PDCA loop or PDCA cycle 
Really what we're saying, and in my line of work, we tend to work a lot with management systems, for example. We work with ISO 45001, quality, which you're familiar with, I should think very well, 9000. They all are fundamentally based on plan, do, check, act, and continuous improvement. Are you saying then, or have I understood that with Scrum, what we're saying is with this mini, mini approach, these mini PDCAs, we are literally adding on more continuous improvement opportunities with the scrum approach as opposed to a traditional waterfall approach. Yes. Okay, that's that to me that is quite enlightening. So have you got experience then of companies who have used traditional waterfall approaches or Gantt charts and so on? I mean typically engineering firms I would think and have they then converted or migrated towards a scrum approach and said wow eureka this is it we should have done this a long time ago it's a mindset shift and that makes it pretty tough so lots of organizations are trying this lots of organizations are feel maybe sometimes even that they've uh, life, life done it uh, but uh, many are still caught in old ways of, of thinking and one way you can discover that if, if i may use this this again um, if we look at the distance between A, if this is A, mm -hmm. and this is B, mm. right? The shortest distance from A to B, so the most efficient way of getting from A to B is, of course, we don't need to ask the audience for that, a straight line. Straight line. Right? So if this is A and this is B, there will be lots of CFOs, economics, and stuff who are saying, but we didn't find the shortest way from A to B. Right? We, we paid more than is necessary to get from A to B. Mm. And that's what we, like, and they're right. If you knew exactly where B would be at this point, then it would be faster uh, as in a waterfall approach to know exactly what we're going to do. And then plan that out, or it might be faster anyway, to get to B. What they tend to forget is that B is moving. They feel it because they deliver the wrong products, they deliver the wrong services, they deliver the wrong software. Just look at Volkswagen, right? I mean, they've developed this ID3, the so supposed to be competition to Tesla for the past, what, six, seven years? Mm -hmm. And they still got the, haven't gotten the software right because they do it in a, more or less in a waterfall approach. Mm. So. That's the other factor, that's the effectiveness. And effectiveness means are we reaching the right point? And that's the problem here, because B is not what we really want it to be. Well, what we want it to be would be B mark, but what we should be is B double mark. Right. Right? And um, so a lot of people, and, and that's typically organizations where you see like a CFO being in charge, and there's lots of organizations where you see today, um, like if the CEO gets replaced, it's often the CFO who takes uh, takes uh, over mm. uh, or another person in that kind of role. And you hear about cost cutting and cost cutting is okay in the, in the as long as it like leans out your organization and makes it lean and faster. But just seeing cost cutting as an automatic way of saving money or making more money, that's wrong because cost cutting might very well be uh, mean that you miss this mark even more. Right. Right. So, yeah. Now, we we purposely, or should I say, I purposely didn't set out, well, 
a set of questions because I wanted my mind to wander around this. I wanted to be like an inquisitive child, you know, to to probe and ask you questions. So the one thing that's come to my mind is the bottom axis there, you had T, T for time. How often do people take corrective action? Is it uh, is there a set frequency or what makes the decision for when you do a corrective moment? And we have some I questions see. coming in as well, by the way, so we'll put them up in a minute. Yeah. So, so one problem is also you, you probably you might know this uh, concept of sunk cost. You know, yeah. and like in when you uh, when you deal with uh, shares, you do an investment and yeah. you have lost money already on it. Mm -hmm. Then people, there's a tendency to not sell shares that you have lost money on because it's sunk cost, and that's a, a it seems to be the the human mind. I'm not a psychologist, but uh, it seems to be in a human mind. If I've invested in something already, I'm very hard of letting it go. Yeah. And it's the same here again. If we if we take this model, we've invested a lot in that product, right? Yeah. And then like if we come to like first of all, it's quite un it's not often that we discover here. There will be developers on your or, or like team members on the people who are developing this process, this software, this uh, hardware, whatever it is that here already know we're not going to finish in time. We're not going to deliver something that uh, has the quality that we actually wanted it to have, et cetera, et cetera. But none of the users or stakeholders will know that. When will they discover that? They will discover it here mm -hmm. at the very end, right? When you, del uh, when you deliver it. Mm -hmm. That's when I will discover, okay, this is not what, we, what, we, uh, what we're planning to have mm -hmm. or what we need today. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry, lost the thread. What was your question again, Sonny? Well, it was about the corrective timing. When when would we do the corrective uh, as you go and on the skewed yeah. line? Yes. So even if we found out here that we're headed in the wrong direction, right, or that we're delivering something, like changing your plan, like you have a huge gun chart, you have invested so much in your plan on how to get to B, that people are very, have a very hard time changing that plan. Because it would, again, some cost would mean they would have to throw some of that planning, like so, uh, quite a bit actually of that work that they have put into the gun chart, into all the analysis in doing the plan, and mm. um, they have to toss that, and that hurts. Another mm. thing is the way we measure success. Like, I like to ask people, if you uh, meet an old friend, uh, he's a classical project manager, he's done that for the past 15 years, where, and you meet him for the first time after university, and he tells you about the successful project he came out. And I asked a big bunch of, of uh, project manager in a, in a presentation I did once, what's uh, success to you? And it comes like shot out of a cannon. Cannon again. It comes like shot out of a cannon. Success is in time, in scope, in budget. Yeah. Right? So if that's how you measure success, of course nobody wants to change. Because this is the scope that we've defined. This is the budget. You could say time is like budget, right? Um, so in, in scope, in time, in budget. And that's how we measure success. Mm. Basically, we don't care what the customer says at the end. That the customer sits in the corner and cries because this is what he needs today. But this is what he got. Because we're still in time, in scope, in budget. Now, I've got another question for that. But I'm going to park mine up. And I'm going to bring some of the other questions in from our audience. So Vince Butler, good friend of mine, he says, why, why, why? Now, I know Vince is very passionate about this, so let's ask you this as well. He says, we, we obviously are hurting people, killing people, and he's put some stats there, 2.7 million, 2.78 million dead every year. Um, he says, the numbers are getting worse, by the way. Just think of it like that, deaths, okay? How can Scrum change the world to stop the wanton 
let's just say deaths of so many working people. So obviously it's quite emotional and I understand where Vince is coming from. In our line of work, we're very passionate about it. We want, to, we want people to go home safe, okay? How can Scrum help? So Scrum itself, of course, is not a silver bullet in the sense uh, that it, it uh, just like poops out uh, solutions to all kinds of problems, right? Um, but it can help you if you have an idea for a potential solution, you probably won't find a, one solution that's going to save those, what was it, 2.78 million uh, people. But you might have, you might think of like lots of people will have different ideas on how we could reduce that number, right? So if you have, have an idea for like how could we sell, I, I worked for an oil and gas company in the UK at some point. And um, we were told to hold the handrails, to put lids on the cup and, and stuff like that, right? I'm sure it doesn't uh, originate out of the office. But somebody at some point had an idea that, hey, if we put lids on coffee cups, the world is safer and we're going to like uh, save a few of those people at uh, this oil and gas company uh, a broken leg uh, because they slipped on some coffee that was spilled on the floor or whatever the reason is. I didn't really get it, but uh, whatever the reason is, right? Then if you have like 20,000 employees and you're planning to roll out that everybody needs to have lit on the, on the coffee, then that actually is quite, I mean, it sounds like a small thing, I think, but I, I imagine I've never been involved in that kind of a project, but I imagine that's still some work because now you need to ensure, uh, first of all, that every coffee machine, there will be lids enough. You'd have to the supply chain of lids. There need to be lids there, right? Then you need to get the process rolled out. You need to explain people. That was actually a training program for not mm. just putting a lid on the coffee. Well, there's a little bit more to that, but there's a training pro. So it's actually, it can quickly become a fairly big project, okay? Mm. Now, if you do all that and you plan on how to get the lids out to every coffee machine and everything, that might be a three quarters of a year project. And then if, I don't know, maybe maybe it's less, maybe it's only half a year, maybe it's a one-year thing before you have everything out. Like, like I say, like the supply chain for every like location worldwide for this uh, oil and gas uh, organization, right? Um, and you've rolled out the process and you've done the training and tell people and there's some people responsible in every organization, in every department to check that this is also done, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you roll that out at the very end. Uh, and then you discover that uh, okay let me find a stupid but the lids don't match or, or fit mm. or anything right that's a huge risk mm. and there's all kinds of risk and i mean the the thing about risk is like we can sit down and analyze like what risk we have and we'll still only cover a fraction of it like mm. while we go through the process while we roll it out while we start using this new product uh, that's when we often discover like uh, new risks new things that uh, don't work as we uh, we had planned now, if you instead did small steps, and that could be in all kinds of dimensions, it could be less uh, uh, features, it could be just for one, uh, for one um, location that you do this lid, and then you get early feedback. Maybe you can do it there after a week already. You can already put lids out, you can train those people, and you say, like, guys, give me feedback, right? And they might give you feedback that this is a stupid rule, it doesn't make sense, it actually makes it more hazardous because now I have to hold, I don't know. Right, mm. uh, and then you get feedback, and you can adapt your product. In this case, the the lids and the whole process, everything around it would be the product. Mm. So, whatever product, and again, I'm using product in the widest possible uh, meaning. Whatever product you have in mind to 
reduced the problem of the 2.78 million people dying of, of uh, hazards or what it was. Um, instead of like going the waterfall way, you can do small increments. It, but it is a mindset shift again, right? It's okay to do some rework because you're not. The goal is not to get as fast as possible, as cheap as possible from A to B. The goal is to get to the right B. And the point is that in the beginning of a new product, a new process, a new uh, service we're going to deliver, we do not know where B needs to be, especially not if the time comp component is uh, long. That's, 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 I, I think I know the company you're talking about, the oil and gas supermarket. That's a bit of feedback. Um, but my experience... What you're saying is very true as well, and, and, and that is um, you need a bit of a sanity check. You need a bit of a corrective process involved. Otherwise, you'll literally just head off and um, have too many errors. They call it the hidden factory, don't they, in Six Sigma. So that's sort of an approach. Now, we've got a couple more questions, Klaus. I'm going to throw this at you. I'm sorry, guys, if you can hear a feedback from uh, the loop anywhere. Let me know. I if you can't can hear any feedback anyway. Okay. Uh, so Charlie's saying, which industry uses Scrum? I've heard of it, but never seen it used at all in any work that I have done. Is it unique to a specific industry? Now, Charlie works in uh, the construction industry. He's a part of a big project uh, in Riyadh at the moment, 7,000-odd people, just to give you a bit of background so you can imagine the angle that he's coming in from there. So I would say today every industry is using Scrum. Uh, Scrum Inc., Jeff Sutherland's, uh, like, like the company of Jeff Sutherland uh, founded and his son JJ is now running. Um, they have a particular course actually on Scrum in construction. So if you want to hear more on, on that particular one, there's, uh, go to Scrum Inc.'s site and, and check it out there. Um, you have Scrum in marketing. You have, so that's not industry, right? But uh, like, Scrum comes out of IT. That's that's no question. That that's where it originates from. In '95, it was uh, presented, and uh, the five years leading up to to that, Jeff was using Scrum in uh, in a in a bank uh, to to. But it was on the IT side. It was also IT people that met in 2001 and came out with the Agile Manifesto. Um, but Scrum is now or has for the past 10 years and in particular the last five years moved more and more out. For instance, that uh, oil and gas company was no IT. IT. Like all the coaching, mm. all the training I did there was actually for development of new uh, oil fields and that kind of stuff. Wow. And it was the same thing again. Like uh, if they have a new field, they do all the, the undersurface, uh, like they gather all the data for under the surface with, uh, I can't remember, I'm not an expert on that, obviously, like, but they get all the data and that's a separate team. Then when that team is done, they hand it over to the next team, which does a static model of the surface. Then when that team is done, they hand it, and we're talking years here, right? This is not like months or anything like this. They hand it over to the next team, which does a dynamic model. So then when they've done that, then they start to do simulations and stuff to figure out like, okay, that corner, we should probably drill for oil or gas uh, uh, first, like try there. And I said like, well, like a, a good, a person that has worked in this field for the past 20 years, won't they often like after a first initial, like some, some basic data, be able to say like that corner, that's probably where we should look first. 
Well, mm -hmm. then do all that analysis, that static, the data dynamic model, every in that corner first, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you don't find any oil there after you drill, then you might say for the whole field, you know what, uh, let's park it for now. Let's wait till the oil price goes up again, and then it maybe it's worth our <laughs> while. But right now, we have like three other fields that we'd rather invest time and, and, and have our teams working on. Mm. So you can use it in any area. Joe Justice, a friend of mine, he's um, he's building cars that way. If you, For those uh, wiki speed, just uh, go and, and uh, Google for, for something called wiki speed. There's a TED talk from Joe Justice. Where he, by by the way, also says like we should use Scrum to eradicate polio. Um, so so back to to that one. Um, Saab Gripen. So the Saab Gripen they uh, use a version of Scrum uh, to build the Saab Gripen. Uh, it's quite fascinating. There's another. There's an article on that. Owning the sky. I think it's called by JJ and JJ yeah. Justice. Yeah. Um, so there's yeah. no, there's no, there's no real shortage of applications, and I know that Jeff and his team have recently moved down to the financial market as well, haven't they? Looking at stocks and shares and uh, how it can be applied in that area as well. Everywhere where you have a complex context, right? And some places we use them, we do it naturally. Like when you, you when when you're supposed to drive from, uh, I don't know, London Centre to Swindon. Um, if you want to find the shortest route from A to B, you can calculate that up front. Like shortest, not yeah. in time, but in kilometers, you can calculate that up front. Yeah. But if you want the fastest route, if you want to get to go home to your wife for dinner uh, to, to Swindon, you're not going to plan the whole route out in the beginning and then just stick to it, are you? Yeah. I mean, if you, I don't know, are you going to take M4 or whatever you're going to take to, to get there? I'm not from London, obviously. Well, it'll be the M25, which is classed as the biggest car park in Europe anyway. So <laughs> Exactly. But, but when you get, no matter where you are, whether it's a side road or it's the main road, if you see problems up front, you're going to decide. Like, you take small steps. Yeah. You basically do every step, like, from one uh, exit of the M25 to the next exit, and then you make a decision: Am I going to exit here and take an alternative route, yeah. or am I going to drive on to the next exit? And you make so the, these small steps, and you don't even notice it, right? So the point there is about uh, the changes are not spread out over vast periods of time. They they're feeding back and feeding back and correcting changes as you go along, uh, which is the key the key part of this, isn't it? Yes. Um, Marty's come up with a question. I know Marty again quite well worked in Azerbaijan together. So we're investing a lot of money whilst working with many blue chip clients in applying concept of Scrum Agile way of working. I experienced our experience. It's a great collaborating tool using project lifecycle, empowering team members to fix and recycle ongoing lessons learned with that chain of command from the top. Mm -hmm. Early stages, but using the digital Scrum board also due to remote working world has kept has been a key step change in the project uh, delivering forward going forward scrum concept the way forward i mean is, is marty talking about the sprint there and uh, the the moving and the going backwards and forwards there i think that's what he's talking about yeah do you want me to uh, like draw scrum like quickly yeah like yeah give, give, give us a quick overview in fact before you do that i think you yep. might also cover a couple of other questions here so we'll go on to the yep. board in a minute rahul says yep. And what Klaus stated on success of project management, I've noticed multiple times the stakeholders involved in project management literally have no engagement with the end user. Welcome to the world of projects. Like the end user needs a red car, the PM successfully provided a bike. That reminds me of the swing, you know, engineering asks for this and yes. they give you the... Uh, 
does Scrum have any segment for competency and engagement? Thanks. So there's another one we can park up for now. Vince is just saying it's the elephant concept, one bite at a time, which is what we're talking about with the corrective aspect. And Charlie yeah. wants to know, well, let's take Charlie's question and go back to the point made earlier about um, the sprint cycle. So Charlie says, what was the site for Scrum in construction? So Scrum Inc. Scruminc.com. Yeah. Right. If okay. you go there, I think it's gonna like hit you right in the face. It's uh, I know they are they're pushing that quite quite a bit right now. So okay. that should be Char Charlie will pick that up. I should think right there. Right, so so let's go back to this. Uh, Marty's got to drop off, but well, let's pick this up anyway and talk about. Tell us about the sprint cycle and what's involved and how that works then. So. I'm, and I'm not going to do it like total just, I'm going to do a little simplified version here right. of uh, Scrum. But so you have stakeholders, right? And, and I like to use the term stakeholders. Uh, you could also call it, call it just users. Users yeah. are the most important stakeholders in my view. And, you and, have and users, yeah. yeah. And users, yes, exactly. So, so and, th and they have requirements to this problem. They have problems that need to be solved. Whether they just talk about their problems or whether they have ideas on how to solve already doesn't really matter in this context. But they talk to this individual, which we like to call a product owner. So yeah. now I'm, I'm introducing some Scrum terminology. That's, uh, uh, that's just how it is. That's the, the product owner, okay? Hmm. And the product owner, she keeps all these requirements from these uh, end users. Or stakeholders, it could also be like managers, and something we like to call a product, or not like to call it, but in Scrum we call it a product backlog. Hmm. Product backlog. Hmm. And a product backlog for it's not a specification, a specification document as such, but if if that's the easiest for, for people to understand, then just consider it as a specification document. There's some Things around the product backlog that makes it uh, make it quite different to a specification document. First of all, a product backlog is like a living document; it changes all the time. Um, like if new requirements come in that are most important, we'll have them at the top of the product backlog. If there's new requirements that we say like, yeah, it's not so important right now, or maybe they're not so valuable, then probably rather at the bottom of the product backlog. So the product owner is uh, working on this product backlog constantly, and then we have a team of people. We like to call them, uh, or in, in Scrum, we call them developers. Mm -hmm. um, and that is discussable whether that is a good name. We probably should have just called them team members. Uh, but they're still called developers. And this is like legacy. It's like because it does come out from IT. Mm -hmm. And we have also a third, uh, and I'll call it role now, even though it's not called role anymore, mm -hmm. um, which is a Scrum Master. Right. And I'll come back to the Scrum Master in a second. This we call the Scrum Team. Yeah. That's most important to know. Now, these developers or the Scrum Team as a whole, in regular intervals, they go and say, like, okay, which of these most important things that we need to do for the next increment or that we decided to do for the next increment, how many of those can we do in the next for the next increment. And uh, they agree, okay, we can do this. So this they put out in the scrum board was mentioned 
but they put out in a kind of a to-do list and say, we need to do all these things. That's our plan for, mm -hmm. for the next iteration. Yeah. And then they start working. Yeah. And this is what we call the sprint. Yeah. Right. So this is sprint. Mm -hmm. A sprint, by definition, by a Scrum definition, is less than or uh, equal to a month. Yeah. yeah. So it could be a one-day sprint. That's that's very rare. But we actually had the oil and gas company I was talking about. We we had that. We had a, a one Scrum team that did one-day sprints. Mostly, it's one or two week sprints. That's uh, what what most teams do. Um, so what they have now bought with this process in the sprint, they've bought focus time, which is one of the big complaints of people today is that they don't have time to focus on anything because mm -hmm. they're going to be, be confronted with new projects, new requirements every, every day, every minute almost. Right? So what we do here is we buy them focus time and we say, like, let's do, for two weeks, you're going to focus on this. And of course, there's reality and there might be operational things I need to do. But in general, like uh, overall, we, we tell them you can focus on this for two weeks. And focus time actually buys us a lot of efficiency. So for, for say, the sprint, they've decided to do two-week sprints. For two weeks, they're going to work on these items that I picked out of the product backlog. While they work on these, the product owner continues to work on the product backlog, takes in new requirements, and um, talks to, to the stakeholders, to the users, gets new requirements, new, new, improves the product backlog. So when the team comes back, uh, at the end of the two-week sprint, they start the next sprint. They have a new product backlog where they again, uh, where they uh, again pick the most important parts for the uh, for the next sprint. At the end of such a sprint, they have what we call a product increment. Mm. We often like to draw it as a as a package, something like this, which they demo, yeah, or review, or show to these stakeholders, right? right? I always call them stakeholders. And get feedback. That's the small step, right? I, that's so, so one yeah. of these arrows here is yeah. one sprint. Yeah. And then at the end of a sprint, they get feedback from these people who, who have an idea of what problem they want to have solved. Yeah. Is that problem, is that helping you? Is that solving a, your, right. your problem, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, one more thing they do, like after the demo review, they typically have a retrospective. Yeah. And you can again think of that like a lessons learned. Yeah. And it's like like looking into the mirror and saying that like, what can we improve for before we start the next sprint. So, let me take this in a direction towards. The sort of work that I do and a lot of my colleagues do are on the call now on the audience side. Yeah. We work in the in the field of risk and safety management. Most of the clients that I work for, they have things like a risk register. Okay. So if we consider that product backlog or the bin, whatever you want to call it, as a bunch of risks that they have to deal with, right? The risk register. Yeah. 
these risks are usually put into buckets of high, medium, lows, and everything else using a uh, risk ranking matrix of some sort. What we could do is we could say that if we're going to apply Scrum, then these risks, based upon their significance and their impact, we could say have a sprint, a sprint cycle of one day, six days, five days, etc. So we can add some granularity to those risks in terms of divvying it out like that. So that actually makes that bin or the, the hopper a lot more realistic if we're going to feed it forward to a sprint cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, if we do that, then the stakeholders are still the same and our, our product owner becomes the risk owner in effect. Okay, that's what it is in, in, um, in ISO 31000, uh, the guidance on the column risk owners. We could actually then say, well, these risk owners have a vested interest in making sure that the sprint cycles go in such a way and it comes through a delivery at the end, which is the risk is managed, mitigated, et cetera, true, whatever you want to call it, an acceptable level or whatever it is. And if it's not, it goes back into the hopper and then it goes through the sprint cycle again. Maybe they had the sprint cycle wrong. Maybe it should have been a month and not one day. Maybe they were too ambitious. So. Could we apply that analogy to that? Ida says, well explained class, by the way. Absolutely, I thought it was very well explained. I'm trying to bring it around to my, my mm -hmm. sort of- Yeah, discipline. that's a fantastic question. So I would say, and, and, and I'm on the other side of this, right? I don't, uh, I, I'm not super uh, sure on how this uh, risk hopper and everything works, but what I understand is like, this would be a list of risks. Yeah. Okay, so instead of product backlog, that's your risk hopper, I think you call yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, how would it be ordered? Well, it would probably be ordered, like a product backlog would be ordered like that, and it probably makes sense to do that, by what we like to call return on investment. Yes. So there's some risks uh, that, that are pretty high, and you need to do something to reduce them before you can continue with uh, your product or before you can send people out to this oil platform or whatever. Um, and there are some other risks that uh, would, would uh, be a benefit, like just financially, if you could reduce them. There's some that you have to reduce to be, be certified or whatever, right? But each of them has a value. Um, it has a value to half the, uh, the, the risk. It has a value if you could completely uh, mitigate the risk. Um, and each of them, like each potential solution to reduce that risk has a price tag. Yeah. And we would like to, to, so that means, just to give an example, the highest risk is not necessarily at the very top here in, in this ordering, typically in a product backlog. That's up to the product owner, though. Yeah. But but the highest risk, the the one that's at the top is the one where we can reduce most risk with least effort. Right. And we don't have just three three like high, medium, and low. We have an order. So if you have like listed fifty three different risks, there is a number one risk you want to address, a number two, a number three, and down all the way down to number fifty three. So mm. there's an order to this, mm. and then. What you don't do, which I'm not sure what you're talking about, like that you say, okay, next sprint, we're going to do a three-day sprint. And then we're going to do a three-week sprint. And then we're going to do a two-and-a-half-week sprint. Typically, a team, of course, they are, are more than welcome to experiment with different sprint lengths because they have advantages and disadvantages, shorter and longer sprints. But typically, they would pick a sprint length. And then I would say, like, okay, for the next, say, if they picked a two-week sprint, we're going to address these seven risks. Right? Are we going to like try to reduce those seven risks? 
that's what we're going to do. Then when they get to here, they might have reduced uh, seven risks. They might have reduced just five because they, uh, as, as we know, right, there's uh, things that you didn't see uh, coming. Um, they might have reduced the nine risks. They might have had the chance to look at nine risks because the seven, they were already fixed uh, or done after one and a half weeks. And now they had time to do two more. So they went back to the product backlog, picked the two top ones, and then they did those as well. Okay, which then feeds in and gives you an idea for how much can we take on in the next two week sprint. Well, if they're all the same size, those projects or those, uh, I like to call them mini projects or nano projects um, in, in the product backlog, then if you did nine last one and you're doing two week sprint again, guess how many you can take in? Nine. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of like the strong uh, way yeah. to do it. I mean, I, I did a bad job of explaining the sprint, so let me try and clarify that a little bit more. So usually what happens in a company or whatever from, from our perspective is we have a bunch of risks to deal with, okay? And, the, and the, the risk owners will say, I can't tolerate this risk. There is a tolerability level. It has to be done PDQ, pretty damn quick, because we cannot <laughs> afford to lose any lives or lose production or lose stakeholder interest. So we have several impacted areas. Now, if the risk is of a significance value where it would affect the business, so you'd become a business risk, not just an operational risk, you might put enough resource, resources in there and say, this is an intolerable uh, amount of pain. We need it fixed within a week, right? Yeah. So you would actually put a sprint cycle, it'd be dictated to, to a large extent, by your stakeholders and other interested parties. There are some other risks, and as you've actually absolutely explained, there are some other risks which you'd say, well, look, you know, these are more yellowish and more greenish, and we can live with them now because the resource bubble isn't infinite, right? We have to deal with them, but not now. So I think I think what you've done with that diagram is pretty, it's quite impressive for me because you can actually start to add a bit more granularity. And as you've said, you want to get that line in such a way you want to take short increments and short changes and corrective actions before you find out you're focusing on the wrong thing you should have been focusing on something that was far more catastrophic as vince would say you know probably another fatality that might happen yeah so that that to me is quite good there's some questions that have come in well charlie's made a comment it says he loves the top down view of the sketch drawing very helpful yeah i'm quite envious of that i used to do stuff i'll have to get back to you thank you for that uh Raul says could a project backlog overrun the one-month sprint time? That's a good question. I'm not really sure I understand it, though. Could a project backlog overrun the one-month? Yeah, I think what he's saying is, you know, you put one-month days, so typically it's like a one-month sprint cycle for this. That one month isn't hard and fixed, is it? I mean, you can. It is variable depending okay. on what... No, no, it is hard and fixed. Oh, is it? Yes. Like a sprint, if a sprint is said to be one month or three weeks or whatever length you now decided for your team, uh, if you started a sprint, what is it today? Tuesday, right? If you yeah. started a sprint, let's say today, on a Tuesday, that's fine, and you do two-week sprints, uh, the sprint ends on Monday next, like not next week, but the week after, right? Oh, two so, weeks sorry, sorry, what I meant was you don't pick a month. You pick what you want as a duration. So yes. it can be two weeks, three weeks. So that that is yeah, variable. But what is important to understand is like in contrast to a, a, a classical project, if we get towards the end of the project and we're not completely done, 
we usually overrun. I think that's what uh, that's how I interpret overrun, right? We add another week and then we do another week. What we often also do is cut corners, right? Especially on quality. It's like, ah, we don't test that much anymore. Just yesterday, I spoke to people, uh, last week, actually, on Friday, spoke to people, ah, should we cut corners? Like, uh, maybe it's not said that clearly, but that's what they're talking about. Should we cut corners in, in, in order to get this project in on time? What we do here, and that's also important to understand, In uh, and, and you were talking about capacity, this Scrum team, right, hmm. they have a certain capacity. And that's just a fact. They have a capacity. And there is no way we, we, we cannot push. What you can get them to do is work overtime and over hours. We all know what that leads to. That leads to, to actually less productivity. There's and increasing risk. Increasing risk, exactly. Uh, less quality and all those bad things that we actually don't want. And everybody says, like, oh, we shouldn't do overtime. But still, everybody tries in a classical project to just press more in. And we do that by means of like do, do, doing like uh, simulating urgency. Like, oh, we really need this, right? The stakeholders come like, this, I really need this. And this guy says, I really need this. And I really, really need this, right? And they're just trying to shove more into it. And it's like, uh, I've heard the comparison before. It's like trying to shove paper into a printer to make a printer work faster. That doesn't work, right? So what we, what we do with Scrum, this whole capacity planning, and we spend a lot of energy in trying to, to, to predict what is the capacity and how much can we get done in the next six months. What we do instead is like we accept that this team has a certain capacity. Then we test how much can they get done. And if they get, like, look at five of these items, let's just for, for simplicity assume these are all the same size. If they're different sizes, then we can deal with that as well. But let's just assume they're the same size, okay? If we figure out that in one sprint they can do five of these, the magic is, it's not really magic anymore. Guess how many they can pull in next time? Five. Mm -hmm. They just prove their capacity is five. The Scrum Master can help them to increase the capacity, like remove impediments for them so they can run faster, like all kinds of process that makes them slow, interruptions that make them slow, meetings that are not necessary that make them slow, all kinds of things that the Scrum Master is constantly working on removing from so they maybe can next sprint do six, maybe then seven, the, uh, the sprint after that. But the capacity is there. And it doesn't help that there are six stakeholders who say, like, I need this definitely by next week. If they're six and their capacity is five, there is not going to be any magic process in the world that's going to solve that problem. And we yeah. all know that adding people to a late project will just make the project later, right? The Mystical Man Month. I think uh, probably a few people here have read that one. Um, so it doesn't either help like to just add a person. That'll actually reduce their capacity. Usually you'll see they will do, do four or maybe only three in the first sprint after that. But it actually gives you a measure of capacity if you measure, like, how many can they do of these? And I think, I think that's fantastic. That's super interesting. Yeah, I think, I think what I find fascinating about this discussion with you is we're, we're, in a strange way, we're going to marry you and me, right, in, in, a, in a technical sense, all right, if that makes sense. I hope my wife's not listening, but you know what I'm saying, right? I'm going to marry you and me together. Now, Garam is saying, thanks for this important topic. I think Scrum can work in hazard identification, risk profiling of complicated process and projects. As much we dig in detail, as much we hunt the hazard and better shape we're in. I, I agree. I think it's that sniper approach, taking the magnifying glass and doing small corrective loops 
rather than heading off like lemmings over a cliff, you know, saying this is the way we're going to do it, poof, and that's it, you know, that's a risk in itself. Anyway, uh, Lou Gardner is in the U.S. is uh, a is combat sergeant uh, in the U.S. forces. So thank you, Sonny, for applying a safety flavor to what Klaus has expertly demonstrated to us. This is absolutely informative. I, I totally agree with you. I think this is this is a revelation for me in terms of we're nearly there in terms of a holy grail. Okay, let's work this a bit more, a bit more magic. So. Your Scrum Master equivalent in our line of work is a risk and safety practitioner, a HSE manager or someone like that, who is tasked with managing, if you like, in some way, these risks in consultation with risk owners and stakeholders and everyone else and so on. Now, if we imagine this Scrum is applied in that approach and we say to the Scrum Master, look, you're empowered. You're empowered to take the risks in this organization, to work in small groups, because you talked about the resource bubble there. We don't want to overburn the engine, right? Thinking we're a Ferrari, but we actually end up being a Trabant or something, right? You want to do it slowly, 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 and do it like You can actually empower the scrum master, i.e. the safety person or the risk manager, to actually drive this in such a way to get positive change. And that is why I got quite excited about Scrum, and I'm still excited about Scrum, because I think there is an opportunity to do something in this line of work. Now, do you do you think that this has been done or is something that we should explore in more detail? I absolutely think you should explore it in more detail. Like I said, with this oil and gas company that I work for in the UK, um, They've been doing it for quite a while. Um, I, I'm not in, in close contact with them anymore. I don't know where they are today. Um, but back then, like in, what is that, 18? I think 2018 when I worked for them, 17 or 18. Um, they, they invested a lot in this. And uh, I think they reduced quite a bit of, of risk in all kinds of areas, right? On the Scrum Master, I think the beauty really of Scrum is that we have separated, and again, we don't have time to go into the discussion of effectiveness and efficiency, but effectiveness is uh, as, as, as all, like it doesn't, it doesn't help you to run up a ladder quickly if it's not leaning up against the right wall. You've heard that saying maybe before, right? Yeah. And making sure it leans against the right wall, that's effectiveness, and efficiency is how fast you get up. And the Scrum Master is responsible for efficiency. And the product owner is responsible for effectiveness, so so doing the right things. Um, so I don't. I'm just saying this because you were talking to about a risk manager. I'm not really sure whether the risk manager would be the product owner or rather the scrum master. But um, yeah, could... right, right. Maybe what we need to do is arrive at some. Ter it's like Kinevin. You know, they have a unique set of terminology. Maybe we need to arrive at a set of terminology for scrum. Uh, which we can then say, well, look, you know, let's bench test this. Let's see if it actually works. We can try it out with a couple of people who are interested and see, does it add value? Does it shortcut discussions and, well. I like that idea. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. I'm actually working with, uh, partly also with uh, Nestle, I think I can say it here, um, on, on doing something similar, trying to map the terms from Scrum 
which originally comes more like from the software industry, but yeah. more to an R&D development, right? So this yeah. is R&D. For R&D people, they, they struggle with other problems. That's not, it's also partly risk, but it's much more like we've no idea how long it takes to discover a new, uh, I don't know, some new kind of food or, or food health uh, or whatever it is. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, we could probably do the same thing around risk, right? I think the product backlog is, what did you call it, a risk? A risk hopper. Well, I call it a risk hopper, but let's just yeah. think of it as a risk register. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, companies have ten, generally tend to have two types of risk register, business risk register, which is um, showstoppers, you know, kill the business at a, at a, in a heartbeat. Yeah. And the others are operational risk registers, which means that the operations could be hit in some way from a production or a financial perspective. Standard terminologies, really, uh, even if they're not, they're the ones that most of my clients tend to deal with. Look, we've we've chalked up an hour and what i'd like to do if you're agreeable to it is i'd like to do some sort of a workshop in the future or some sort of a, an event a zoom type event where maybe we can get a group of people together and we break out into rooms and try and get some engagement in this if you're agreeable to that i know you're super busy if you're agreeable to that maybe you'll come back and um take part in that with us yeah i would love to i think that would be I, I, super interesting yeah, and I'm not super busy because being busy is not a smart thing. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You, you, if you if you are busy, then you have to ask your question about your agile working approach. <laughs> and look, you we haven't even touched. Slack. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even touched agile working, Kanban, and Scrumban. Oh God. <laughs> um, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this uh, session. Klaus, and thank you so much for certainly enlightening me and I think many on, on the session today. And I think we need to work on this magic a little bit more and I'm pleased that you're receptive to that. But it just, I mean, do you want final thoughts and words on this and then we'll go to VT and uh, have a quick catch up afterwards. Any final that'd thoughts? That'd be great, yeah. And I would love to be in a workshop like that. I mean, I could learn a lot about risk more and I think there's... Uh, there's a lot of value in doing some some mapping just to understand like what are the difference between a risk registry and a product backlog what do you need to change and yeah so people coming from the risk side would understand scrum better and uh, see maybe how they can apply it to uh, their daily life and uh, work life and um, yeah coming from a scrum perspective from a more it background i would understand more about risk that would be fantastic yeah, and let's, let's make it pragmatic and help people in terms of doing their efficiencies a lot more efficient. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah Klaus, let's see. And final thoughts. Yeah, Klaus, uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to run the VT, and I'd just like to say, really enjoyed that. Looking Me forward too. to uh, seeing you back on the show. Stay well. Thank you, everybody on the show, for staying with us today. Don't forget on Thursday, you might be very interested in this class. We have got Randall Fleming, who's from the Barry Way Miller, and he's going to talk about Lean L3. Another interesting topic. Very interesting. Wow. I'll be there. Yeah. Thanks, wow. everybody, for thank listening. You. Okay. Yeah. The Bye comments. for now. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing some of your time with us on the show today. I hope you found that enjoyable. We certainly love putting these shows together and trying to engage with the community out there. If you have any thoughts or any comments or any suggestions, please just whack us an email on live at redrisks.com and always happy to hear from you. Once again, if you miss any of the shows, 
head over to the YouTube channel, Red Risks, and you'll find all the shows are uploaded there. Catch up next time. Thanks. Stay safe. Stay well. <laughs>